Hello, welcome to Canada Chicks Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Babrudi, and this is your place to come to when you want to expand your consciousness, learn about ancient medicine, psychedelics, entities, dimensions, spirituality, basically a bunch of mind-blowing stuff. If this sounds like your cup of tea, you're in for a ride as I bring on the coolest guests from all over the world who are experts in diving into the unknown. Today is going to be a very special episode as I have my girlfriend Andrea here joining us. Please introduce yourself. Hi guys, my name is Andrea Muska. Um, I'm a student at Suffolk University and so my main research focuses are um, research, I mean <laughs> not research, psychology. So I'm a psychology student and so I study perception, um, higher cognitive processes, visual systems, and things like consciousness. Isn't she the coolest? <laughs> So Andrea, please tell us, what are we doing here right now? Yeah, so um, I just received a random email one day from my philosophy professor, and he's one of my favorite professors. Um, and it was, it just happened to be Dr. Walden's article and essay on the symbi symbiotic entities of psychedelic, psychedelic entities. Um, and I fell in love with it. It was fascinating. It was stuff that I had been talking a lot about in my own research with my professors and my mentors. Um, one of my research projects was to do, you know, combine technology with psychedelic science for psychotherapy. And so we titled it Cyberdelics. And so we use virtual reality, VR, to kind of create and simulate a psychedelic space and how we could use that space with VR for psychotherapy. And so he was familiar with the kind of work I was doing, trying to kind of understand that space of like, you know, higher consciousness, that higher elevated state? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is the nature of that space? And from a philosophical perspective, it's very interesting because we can't quite pinpoint it down structurally or biologically yet, but we can kind of describe it ontologically with, you know, philosophy. And Dr. Walden's uh, essay was perfect for that. And so I eagerly shared it with you immediately as soon as I got it. We stayed up super late reading it and, and now we're here. Yes. So today we have with us Dr. Asher Walden. He holds his PhD in theology. He's been a professor for over a decade teaching philosophy and religion. Now he does a bunch of cool stuff, including writing publications that really take your brain on a journey. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's really my pleasure to be here. I'm just, you know, honored and flattered that somebody read this thing that I wrote and, and, and thought it was interesting and thought it was worth talking about. Of course, this is where science should go. We need to put a lot more attention onto this, onto these areas for sure. So tell us, why do you think consciousness is important to study? <laughs> well, that's a fun question. The, the short answer is um, consciousness is important to study because consciousness is all there is. Everything yep. that there is, everything that we experience, everything that we know, everything we do, everything we feel, um, every cell and every blade of grass, right? Every, every mosquito, every child, every sunset, everything that's good and everything that's difficult, it's all consciousness. Consciousness is just what it's made of. Um, so once you sort of understand that, you can start to ask some really in interesting questions about sort of how the world works. Um, it's obviously it's a very different sort of question than asking about how this engine works or or how a certain medicine works to heal a certain illness. And and to be honest, I'm always sort of wondering in the back of my mind 
how the questions that I'm interested in relate <laughs> or can be applied to, to those more practical questions. Every once in a while, I sort of have to remind myself that we're all interested in different things and we all do different things. And probably what's most useful is, is, is that we all just do what we're good at, you know, and, and, and let the chips fall where they may. And so I study consciousness. I read everything I can read about consciousness. I've, you know, studied. So as you mentioned, my, my degree is in Christian theology, but mostly what I studied was comparative religion, comparative philosophy, uh, some ethics, some psychology, you know, a, a little bit of a lot of different things, trying to kind of put together what I knew and what I'd experienced and, you know, just sort of my own intuitions about the thing. And, um, and, and after, you know, however many years I've been doing this, I'm, I'm happy to say that I've reached a place where I, I, I feel like I finally figured something out. Um, and wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I didn't <laughs> think it was going to take this long, frankly. Um, but yeah, I, I finally feel like I'm in a place where I, I, I get something. I've got a couple of sort of key metaphors. One or two of those are, are in that article uh, that, that you mentioned. So yeah, I, I think that it's it's interesting. It's important. It's a passion of mine. It's it's something a lot of people are interested in. Will it be useful to anyone ever? I'm I'm optimistic, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know maybe Andrea, maybe you'll be the one who actually figures out a way to put it into practice. A hundred percent. That's the that's mm. the goal. <laughs> yeah, it's such a big mysterious area. Like what makes up our consciousness? What is going on here? Is what we're perceiving an illusion? Like we don't really have many ways to measure that. <laughs> so that's why it's really amazing to have conversations with people who are interested in these topics so we can like try to piece some things together because I think that's what will give us the best results, just the shared experience. So how do you think psychedelics can help us get a better idea of what consciousness is? Yeah, I, I really like that word um, psychedelic. And the reason I like it, you, I, I don't know if you've heard, you know, there, there's some discussion, I guess, about what the best language is to talk about these medicines or even whether to call it medicine or call it something else. Um, and it has to do with it, it's loaded because the word that people use really does have to do with their intuitions, I guess, about what these things do and how they do it. So, uh, of course, everyone knows psychedelic means mind manifesting. And I think that that's exactly right. I think that what psychedelics do is is allow us to perceive consciousness itself from the inside, so to speak. So consciousness obviously is, is what we all are. It's what we're doing. But in a funny way, we're, we're only seeing it from the outside. We're, what, what we experience is, as it were, the product or the content of consciousness, right? That's kind of the old kind of movie screen analogy, I guess. I, it's, I'm not, it's not an analogy that I'm crazy about. I think it's problems. But, you know, if consciousness is sort of like a movie screen, what, what we actually experience is never the movie screen. What we experience is what's on sort of what, you know, the story that's being portrayed. And, and that's, you know, not an illusion. It's, it's, it's what's actually going on. But we're just seeing sort of the surface of it, the outside of it. And, and in that sense, I think maybe the movie screen analogy is, is not such a bad analogy because it's sort of flat, right? It's two-dimensional. And, and what psychedelics seem to do is, you know, whatever the neurochemical processes are, it, it allows you to see the very structure of consciousness itself, what's inside of it, what its sort of parts are, what its um, kind of range and kind of internal logic is. And I think that the more 
you know, it's, uh, you know, like they say, set, setting and dose, you know, the more kind of intentional you are about how to use the medicine, the more, you know, it helps to have some experience under your belt. It helps to do a lot of reading and it helps to be most of all, very, very clear about what questions you want to ask, because I actually really believe that any question that you can ask, any question that you, that your mind can phrase in something like language, you can find the answers to, and it may not be immediate, it may not be quick, but I do think that the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness just is to, to know whatever there is to know. And we um, have, have access to that. And, and it's not even as hard as we sometimes think it is. Yeah. I think that we talk a lot about how mysterious and how difficult and, and the, the kind of ultimate mysteries of the cosmos, but in a funny way, we, we have access to that. Because we are it. We are That's what we are. Yes. Where, 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 did, where else did we come from, right? Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> exactly. there's, no, there's, there's no great conspiracy preventing us from knowing these secrets. You just, you just mm -hmm. have to know what you want to ask and then you know, maybe find, find the right people and, and find the right medicine and find the right um, situation. But there's, there's really nothing stopping us except for our own kind of embarrassment, I guess, about wanting to know. Yeah. Yes. I think the more open we are to ourselves, the more the answers can flow from the universe. That's just what I've seen. For example, taking psychedelics for me, I feel like I get a lot more answers from the universe or feel more connected. And then I have friends who aren't as open and they do not have the same experience. So it's very interesting to me that um, if you want to know, they will try their best to slowly give you that, you know, open those doors for you in your mind. And this also made me think about the DMN, the right default mode network sure. that, that your brain has, um, that it control, is it your ego or it controls your ego, like the organization? Um, so essentially the default mode network can be described as sort of the veil, like the most dominant veil that we have in our day-to-day and -day how we perceive. And so it's almost kind of like our go-to outfit, if you will, you know, just like super standard, how we see, you know, normal, quote unquote, or sober, you know, waking state of our normal state of consciousness. And with this default mode network, it's really fascinating because with psychedelics, um, there's a ton of literature research on this. It's even been talked about in some of the big, more popular mainstream documentaries about psychedelics, but essentially psychedelic substances will kind of reconfigure the default mode network. And so what it does for this veil, um, it kind of messes around with it a little bit. It becomes more malleable. It starts to reconfigure itself. And it's not so, it's not so much of like, um, I'm trying to find the right words to describe it, like like stuck, you know what I mean? So it becomes unstuck. The mm -hmm. veil becomes, you know, it can reconfigure itself into different things. And so once you remove that veil, you kind of have, you know, everything beyond that. And that's where it gets to be really, really interesting because um, similar to what you were saying, um, Dr. Walden, with, you know, the analogy with the movie theater, if you yourself kind of like are the movie in the movie theater, um, the screen kind of acts as that veil, that default mode network. And so if you're constantly there looking at it, you don't really know that there's anything beyond it until it reconfigures itself right in front of your eyes. And when you're on a psychedelic substance, you know, that for the first time you see, 
oh wait, this is just the screen. Like there's more beyond the screen. There's people who like, you know, there's things that like help put the screen there, different parts of the screen. Um, and one of my favorite ways to kind of think about it um, is this analogy kind of like with a house. And so you are inside of the house all the time. And once you get to that elevated state of consciousness, it's as if you step out of the front door and are looking at the house from the outside, like from the front lawn. And so that's a really interesting thing because we're not really used to seeing ourselves in that way um, because our default mode network, that veil prevents us from seeing it in that way because seeing things in that way all the time would be just too much information for us. It would be an overload. So the veil kind of protects us. Like it has, a, it serves a purpose, but when it becomes too stuck or too, you know, closed, it can, you know, develop into more negative things and, and that when that's where it goes back to what you were talking about with ego, where we can get kind of stuck in that default veil of ego and we forget that there's a whole other play outside of that. Yes, very well said, Andrea. <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm really curious about. Why are we only supposed to see a certain amount of things like this physical reality with our eyes? That's very interesting to me. Why do when we reconfigure it, then we are able to open up to these different realms? Sure. I, I think that there's a reason why we're here, mm -hmm. right? One, one thing that I've heard several times and that always rings, bell with, rings a bell with me, and, and I've experienced this myself, that in states you realize, you remember that we are here in this world because in some way, at some point, we chose to be here. There's, there's, there's something here that we just cannot get anywhere else in the multiverse of eternity, right? There's something very special about this life. There's something very wonderful about having a physical body, but there are mm -hmm. costs, right? Yeah. And so, so much of our lives is really devoted to kind of paying those costs, I guess, and, and figuring out how, how we want to live and, and kind of figure out what we want to do here. Um, but, but one of the costs is that we really do have to focus on what we have close at hand, right? It would be great if we knew everything, but let's face it, that would be very, very distracting, Yeah. right? It would be like, yeah. um, so one, another way to think of this veil of the default mode network is, 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 is to think of like, um, you know, a, a radio or, or even or a television and you, and you can tune it to one station or you can tune it to another station, depending on whatever you want to watch. But what you can't do is watch all the stations all at the same time, right? You just can't do it. Right. I mean, we, you know, we, we all kind of already have ADD, right? We have enough problems <laughs> functioning in this world. Um, and so I, I just want to kind of affirm that the default mode network is a very, very helpful, it's a filter, mm -hmm. right? And what it does is it filters out all of the entire kind of, um, kind of infinity of data points that in principle, our, our mind has access to, but kind of what the kind of the brain does and that brain, that part of the brain or that circuit in the brain does in particular is just sort of focus, kind of focus out, filter out everything else that we don't need to worry about and just kind of focus on what seems to be the most practical information for maintaining our bodies and interacting um, with other bodies in the world in the ways that we do. And, and that thing is supposed to be sort of flexible. Mm -hmm right? Because situations change, we, we grow older, our bodies change quite dramatically, 
I'm getting older myself, my body is changing, it's not so great, but we can adapt as long as your default mode network has, is, has just enough neuroplasticity to deal with new information and in new ways. And one of the things that we have that happened, and I think that this is sort of like an emerging model of mental health generally, that there's, there's gotta be a kind of accommodation or, or, or meeting or, or cooperation between the changes that are happening in your life and, and your brain's ability to reinterpret and, and, and adapt, right? And so as long as your mind is sort of adapt, your brain is sort of adapted to your situation, everything's cool, everything's mm -hmm. happy, you know what your roles are and you, and you find your pleasures and you, and you serve the world in the ways that you serve. But there are sort of various pretty familiar ways in which we lose neuroplasticity like trauma, chronic stress, just a few other kind of really, really pretty predictable um, things that, that where, where we lose our neuroplasticity, like we sort of freeze up. And as long as the situation doesn't change, well, that's okay. But how long is that going to happen? Yeah. And then, so there's this misfit, this grinding of the gears between our consciousness of, of how we think the world is supposed to be from a practical standpoint and what we're actually experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And so what the medicine seems to do is is bust, <laughs> sort of bust you out temporarily of, of that DMN, right? So you have access to the whole, and you see, oh my gosh, there's all sorts of things I could do. There's all sorts of choices I can make. There's all sorts of freedom that I actually have. And so that, that burst of neuroplasticity gives you an opportunity, first of all, just to be more uh, plastic, more flexible in general, but also to be able to see things about your situation and about your life that maybe you just didn't see before because it was just a blind spot. Yeah, that's the key therapeutic aspect of, you know, psychedelics for me especially and how we can use them for psychotherapy. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at treatment-resistant psychiatric disorders, things like major depressive disorder, um, really yeah. bad alcoholism, addiction, you know, these things where like you were describing, our default mode network, it becomes so fixed to the point where you can't break out of it. And your your perception is, you know, all of a sudden down to like this pinpoint of negativity and darkness. And you can't really get out of it because you're, you literally do not have the capability to see beyond that. And so what you see is what you know, because, you know, perception, what we see is becomes our reality. And if you, internally, your internal framework does not allow you to see anything outside negativity and closed mindedness and insecurity and trauma that you, you know, had to deal with in your childhood, like you are stuck there. And things like talk therapy, things like even SSRIs, you know, aren't helpful at all because if you're not able to receive how can you learn and how can you change and so it's really this thing where the default the reconfiguration of the default mode network is near magic it's it's miraculous to to the treatment resistant individual because what i always like to say is you know there's possibility wherefore before there was none and that you know to me is a spiritual and therapeutic and medicinal aspect of psychedelics where it gives you that gift of, you know, reinterpreting your perception and like, you know, realizing, hey, I actually can be flexible and change things. And the, you know, idea that you yourself are in control and that you can change things is 
invaluable because to a lot of treatment resistant individuals, they have, you know, no sense of control, you know, everything happens to them, you know, they don't have any influence in the world. And, you know, that adds on to depression and, you know, so on and so forth. And so this reconfiguration of the DMN is crucial for those um, individuals so that they can get to a more plastic place where they can, you know, adopt different skills and, you know, change their course of life. And so it's not easy for everybody to do that, especially populations like those who suffer with addiction. You know, there's kind of this rhetoric where it's like tough love and it's kind of like, well, you know, just get over it kind of thing. Or like, you shouldn't have been doing that stuff in the first place. But, you know, for the really, really um, rigid DMN, that is just not a possibility for them. And so you kind of need, you do need something to kind of burst that open, almost like an explosion. And psychedelics serve that purpose wonderfully because it's instant and it's long lasting. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't have to have it, you know, a daily pill. It can be, you know, a one and done side sort of thing. Um, and that's the magic of it. Yeah, for sure. Like even just my first breakthrough experience happened months ago and I'm still trying to work through it. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of lessons that you can possibly learn from just one amazing experience, it's unreal. Mm -hmm. So this actually leads on to our next question, which is, uh, do you believe we are transported to another realm on a breakthrough dose? Yes. <laughs> I, I guess this is a short, short answer. I think that there's you know, up to a point, I think you could say, well, you know, it's just sort of your own unconscious or it's just sort of your own wisdom or it's just sort of your, you know, it's just what's inside, you know, up to a point, you could say, oh, it's just kind of imaginative kind of mythological play up to a point. You can sort of tell yourself that story, but uh, you know, the, the, the kind of further down the rabbit hole you go at some point, you just have to just be willing to acknowledge the truth that there, there is this big, big world, right? That the, that the cosmos is a, is a lot, is just very big, right? And, and what we experience of it is, you know, our, our little tiny fragment of it. So I, I think that what really happens is not so much that you go anywhere, um, it's more that your scope of perception changes. It's like looking through a microscope or looking through a telescope. You haven't really gone anywhere. One thing, this, this, this is going to sound like sort of a tangent, but one metaphor I like is, is to say that consciousness is, is, is not a thing. Consciousness is a place to live. Consciousness is like a territory, right? And so you guys are, where are you guys? You guys are, are you guys in Amherst? Are you guys in Massachusetts? Yeah. Okay. So Amherst is a, is a lovely, so there's campus, right? Maybe you're on campus and then campus has its own domain, right? And, and on campus, there's, this, there's, it has its own rules and its own um, kind of um, patterns and schedules throughout the day, but simultaneously, and it has its own seat of power. It has its own throne. It has its own kind of council of people who decide what the rules are going to be within the, cam the campus, but the campus is simultaneously within the town of Amherst. Maybe there's, there's town ordinances. Uh, there's another seat of power where someone else decides what, you know, what the rules are going to be for people who live in the town, what's going to be decriminalized, say, for example, which may not apply to nearby municipalities. 
and that's within the state of Massachusetts with its own seat of power in Boston, and that's within the U.S. Okay, so if at one moment you're in your dorm and in another moment you're in the U.S., you haven't left, you haven't gone anywhere, you're simultaneously in all of those places. And consciousness has that structure. Consciousness has that structure where it's, it's, it's levels within levels within levels um, and, and greater and greater diversity as you go down. But at any given time, there are levels and levels of consciousness within you, but there are also levels and levels of consciousness that you are a part of, that you are inside of, right? So you, you know, Andrea, are a neuron inside of a cosmic brain, right? Yes. And, and mm -hmm. so on and, and so on and so on and so on. I love right. that. I think even just looking at images of the structure of the inside of the brain and kind of the neural connections, comparing that to, you know, um, pictures of the cosmos and outer space, the similarities are uncanny and it's, it's mind-boggling. I think so, um, probably, <laughs> but it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of, um, you know, symbolic of this idea of, you know, as within, so without, as above, so below, where, you know, you know, just as we have an internal cosmos in our mind, so do we have an external cosmos? And I think the problem with, you know, this limited perception, you know, this tiny taste of whatever, of what we're getting, um, it, we kind of tend to forget that. And it's kind of like, you know, do, you know, focus on the matter at hand. And we tend to forget that there's this whole other part of the cosmos, kind of like this, this internal world. And I mean, it depends. You could be either stuck in your internal world or you could be stuck in the external world. And it becomes so separate, so disconnected through ego, through conditioning, through law, through institutions, through society, where you kind of forget that this whole, it's an interconnected whole. Um, and you get so used to seeing things as disconnected parts that you then believe that they are disconnected parts. And for me, I really like looking at physics um, to kind of help explain a lot of this for me. Um, and in terms of light, we only see less than 1% of the full electromagnetic spectrum out there, which is bizarre. I think it's something like 0.0035% is what we can see. And what we see is what we perceive. And what we perceive is what we understand. And what we understand is our consciousness. So really, we're just getting a tiny sliver um, of this entire big, beautiful spectrum um, that we don't, we're really missing out on. And so how I kind of like to compare this with consciousness is that, you know, if we could see infrared and ultraviolet and our tiny sliver all at the same time, I mean, we'd be overwhelmed. It's kind of like, you know, imagine you are walking around and you kind of see, you know, the psychedelic entities you do while you're tripping. You'd be like, holy shit. <laughs> like, I, I don't really, I don't want to see like a goblin right now on my way to class or something. Like, if you could see all that at the same time, you wouldn't be able to get anything done. And so it goes back to, you know, GMN serving a purpose. It does serve a purpose, but it can become dysfunctional when, you know, it becomes too fixed um, negatively. And that's kind of how I like to look at it. I, yeah. I, a similar, a, a very similar analogy instead of light would be um, a symphony, 
Mm -hmm. right? I don't, I don't like physics metaphors so much because I don't understand physics and I'm not that bright, <laughs> but I, but I do like music. Um, and, music is physics. and, and I, well, yeah, I guess, I do. <laughs> but what I, what I, you know, what, I, what I really like is, is thinking about our kind of individual consciousnesses insofar as we are individuals as, as members of, of a symphony or a choir, right? It's really, really important that we remember, because it's just what you were saying, Andrea, that, that our parts are performed within this larger whole. And, and we have to have some awareness. We have to be attuned to this larger whole. Otherwise, we're going to be out of tune, right? It's going to sound like crap, mm -hmm. right? And so there's this thing, you know, that people have sort of practical, um, I don't know, techniques for voice blending, right? You should sing just loud enough that you can hear yourself, but also hear those around you. So you make sure that you're constantly attuned, right? Um, and, and again, a healthy functioning um well-attuned default mode network is a way of functioning in the world where you're sort of naturally in tune and sort of intuitively engaged with the kind of workings of the cosmos and society and your family um, and your spouse your significant other and your friends and your school, you know, everything sort of every week kind of we're, we're hardwired to be able to be in tune and to play our part and to contribute to this whole but if we're not in tune, there's friction, there's mm -hmm. conflict, there's bloodshed, you know, it goes on and on and on. Um, just, just because we sort of forget that we're not the only one singing yeah. or, or we think we, that we want to be the only one singing just yeah. so that we can be the one who's sort of in control. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. and, and so the, the best part of mental health is just being in tune, right? With, with those around you, with your job, with your life. Yeah, that reminds me exactly of like my high school marching band. <laughs> I was in middle and high school no marching more. band. Yeah. And it was kind of like you had the, you know, the super cocky like brass players who just want to blare as loud as they can. Or, you know, even in a jazz ensemble, like you kind of have the cocky guitar player who wants to just like, you know, shred. And it's like, you know, my, my band teacher was always like, guys, we got to have balance. You have to have balance within the ensemble. Because when you look, when you listen back to the recordings, it's, it's freaking hilarious. It's just like this <laughs> over blaring, like, yeah. And it's like, you can barely hear like the, what's supposed to be happening in the background. And you forget like, oh, wait a minute, there's a whole other, you know, ensemble here and story that's supposed to be here. Not me just trying to like, show off a little bit. And it can be either or, you know, either, I mean, you know, depending on who you are, what extreme you are. I mean, I like to see everything as a spectrum again. So it's like that could, you know, you could be wanting all that control for yourself or equally you could be fixed in the sense where you don't believe you deserve any control. So you play quieter than everybody else because you're too embarrassed. You don't want to be heard because mm -hmm. you're afraid you'll get it wrong. Yeah. It's like ties into the whole like illusion of the self thing you like to talk about, right? Yeah, I mean, like you could go many different routes with the illusion of the self. Um, for me, the best perspective that helps me understand it um, comes from Buddhism a lot. And I know, Dr. Walden, you talked a lot about um, Buddhism in, in your essay specifically mm -hmm. and how, you know, we can use kind of the Buddhist ideologies to understand different parts of our consciousness and how they, you know, work as autonomous, independent, you know, gears in this larger 
whole system. And right. I think you can explain that better than I can. Sure. So um, if you go back to the metaphor of the symphony, um, you yourself are a symphony, right? Symphonies within symphonies within symphonies. You yourself are a symphony and you have many, many players. You've got you know, and, and, and they're divided up roughly into sections. And this, and this is sort of the, the Buddhist Abhidharma analysis to sort of say what the sections are, what the, what the, what the bundles, I guess. And there's a, a, like a visual perception bundle. There's an auditory perception bundle. Um, and there's, uh, you know, a bundle of uh, hunger and thirst and, and sexual desire. And then there's fears and anger. And all of these things are not good or bad. Right. All of these things are are voices in the choir. But there's this other character and and who's like the conductor. So it's very, very important to have a good conductor. Right. Um, and the conductor is sort of an interesting character. Right. Because on the one hand, the conductor is just one more performer on the floor. Right. He's not in, he's not God. Right. He's not special. He's just one. He's got his job to do just like the, the brass players have their job and the, and the percussion session, have, the percussion session section has their job. Right. But so the, the old I forget who said this, but it's sort of a famous saying that just as the musicians play their instruments, the conductor plays the musicians. Right. And it's his job to sort of keep everybody, keep their volumes right right? Make sure that they're coming in at the right time. And everybody's sort of organized. So if you sort of visualize what the, what the orchestra looks like, they're, all, the, all the musicians are sort of organized in this sort of semicircle with layers and rows around with, with, with the conductor in the center. As I said before, you, you each one of you and me too, we are, we are symphonies. We're this, we're this kind of uh, collection of, of individual musicians. And, and one of those musicians is the conductor that conductor is who we usually think we are like myself like usually what we think of when we say uh, self or the buddhist like the small self that small self is that one conductor and that one conductor he can be a tyrant <laughs> right or he could be you know a, you know just a gifted natural performer or, or usually he's sort of somewhere in between right and um you know that conductor has a job to do and and sometimes the conductor forgets his job or mm -hmm drinks too much and passes out right <laughs> isn't doing anything whatsoever it's just chaos mm -hmm. um but so yeah so this is this is why the buddhists say or, or buddhists say that we have no self because what we actually have is is this is this aggregate but we do have a self in the sense that there is this one kind of member who who has this distinctive role yeah so that's that's kind of a, a quick summary of, of of the of the Buddhist idea of the self. We talk a lot about um, discrete perceptual bases and how they operate mm -hmm. in parallel, yet they're vertically aligned. And then later on, right. you describe the nature of self as continuous. So I'm really interested in how it can be both discrete and continuous at the same time. Or if I'm getting that wrong, please correct me. Yeah, this is this is sort of a it's a very tricky question. Um, and there's and there's some debate within <laughs> even within the Buddhist tradition about this. Um, generally, it's it's agreed that individual consciousnesses are, you know, they're like uh, atoms, right? They're like qu quanta units, right? That they're that they're complete and and whole in and of themselves, 
in and of themselves, even as at the same time they're constituted of, of yet smaller perceptions and, and those perceptions are constituted of yet smaller perceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that maybe it helps to remember is that what we call time is a construction within the system, mm-hmm. right? You know, just as the conductor keeps time, but there's no such thing as time. There's just, just this, the time that the conductor is using. It's, it's an organizational principle, right? Just like you divide the horn section from the percussion section from the uh, string section, time is one of the one of the ways in in which that organization happens. Um, so, in that sense, there is no such thing as time. But in another sense, well, mm-hmm. yeah, there is time. We need it, right? This is sort of a, yeah. a part of the matrix that by which we function. Mm-hmm. Um, so, continuity is one way that we describe the order because it is ordered. Um, And that's um, just sort of, I think, in general, a helpful thing to remember uh, that, you know, that that you see very, very clearly, again, within either the psychedelic state or or just sort of intuitively in other kind of peak experience type situations that the world, whatever else it is, actually is very, very, very well ordered. It's Mm -hmm. very finely tuned. It's very kind of precise and crystalline in its geometry. And even though there are places just because there's so much kind of proliferation of complexity within, 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 there are these kind of frequencies sort of clash and there can be some, uh, again, some, some conflict, some disharmony. We, we're, we're here to um, kind of reattune, mm-hmm. to, to correct those errors. Um, so our, our sense of time you know, it's just, it's just, it's just part of the program within, you know, like I was saying before, like we, we, we made a choice to be here on, you know, on planet earth within mm-hmm. this realm, within this domain of, of psyche, I guess. Um, and time is, is time works the way that it works here yeah. as part of the deal that we make of being embodied. Yes. And that embodiment Definitely. really just screws up time so much it's it's (laughs) crazy um and so now I kind of see time as like another measurement like centimeters or inches or feet and it's things you know all of a sudden are less serious you know and and it's beautiful once you kind of take the dimensions that govern um our daily living reality and you know quote unquote, normal mainstream perception, once you realize that the dimensions that construct the bases for that um, are really just kind of, you know, they, they can change. Um, that really threw me for a loop when I realized um, not everything is fixed. This isn't, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's like you could, you know, in that elevated state, be going into different types of realities. And I do think that that is kind of a hundred percent a real thing because once you remove the dimensions of time and space, which is what largely govern um, our 3D um, reality that we live in here on earth and 2D, which is what we can perceive. I mean, physicists have defined, you know, up to 24D, I think, or 11D or something like that, but they're in the double digits. It's crazy. So (laughs) regardless, I mean, there's just so much more um, happening than what we know. And that kind of is that larger matrix. um, And what we can pay attention to is, you know, 
this smaller one where time is fixed, time is chronological, because it just helps us stay grounded in that way. And I think that I connect that to these kind of discrete perceptual bases where in our 3D reality, we have to have, you know, this continuous large interconnected whole perceptually broken up into discrete little sections, aspects, or bases, um, just so that we can, you know, focus on being present. Because again, too much of everything would, you know, incapacitate us. I kind of see self in that way too, where you can be super fixed on the discrete sense of self, that disconnected sense of self, where you can fall into traps of, you know, materialism, consumerism, you know, high ego, pride, corruption, so on and so forth. Um, and you forget that it is part of this larger continuous whole. Um, and you forget that your mind breaks it up for you on purpose. And then you take that to be fact when it really isn't that way. And a lot of um, people in you know the field of perception are saying that a lot of it is illusion. Um, and that is really freaky. Yeah, speaking of illusion. <laughs> so a thing that I've been really getting into lately is uh, learning about your astral bodies and how that we can, you know, go into the astral realm or like other places, you know, and, or even with meditation, like you don't need to have your eyes open to go to different places or see different things. And that's what I've been thinking about a lot. And even with the last time I took, um, had psilocybin, I noticed that I could feel my astral body kind of coming off me very slowly. And for people, uh, I don't, let me, I'll try to explain the astral body as best as I can, but it's like another, it's like your internal, uh, it's like another vessel. <laughs> it's not your physical vessel, but it's like a lighter vibrational frequency energy kind of vessel that I think holds, carries your soul type of thing. Do, do you know how to explain the astral body, Dr. Wald? I have no idea how to explain the astral bottle. <laughs> no, I, no, I, it's like... I don't know, dude. I guess it's, yeah, it's mine. What, yeah, what I would say, it's pretty what cool. I would say just briefly is that you know, you no matter where you travel to within the, you know, the the greater landscape, I do think you know, like we were talking about before, I do think it's real. I do think that there's a place there. I do think that we kind of enter into it and, and perceive it, um, and I, I think it's the same place whether you know whichever medicine you use or whether you enter it through dream uh, not all dreams are magical or special most of our dreams are just ordinary unconscious kind of regurgitation of imagery uh, but i think that there's there's plenty of doorways there into that realm th through dream um, and and maybe other states well and, and maybe people are just more or less attuned yeah. right to sort of to having these sort of sensibilities of what's out there but when you go to that place you're still kind of you, right? You're not, yeah. you're, obviously you're not your body, um, but there's, there's a, you know, there's something that's sort of holding, it's, it's like there's something that's sort of holding your uh, perception together mm -hmm. and, and it's very, and it's very different. You know, so this, this is something that's sort of like when you're sort of half asleep and you can sort of feel yourself getting close to being awake or sort of feel yourself kind of re-engaging your physical body, re-engaging your awareness of where you are, but you can sort of bring yourself back up and snooze mm -hmm. for a few more minutes. And, um, you know, and I, I think we do that in, in, in with, with the medicines as well. So you can, you can, mm -hmm. you can tell the difference, right? You can mm -hmm. tell the difference between when you're 
awake and aware and engaged in your physical body in this kind of natural and normal way. And when you're awake and aware, but your body is like, who, who knows where the hell that is and, and, and who really cares, yeah. frankly, because you're, 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 you know, you're, you're exploring, you're making new friends, you know, yeah. you're, you're doing things. And I think, oh yeah, for the sure. The super interesting thing about that kind of state of being is that um, in our, in our brain, once we start to get to those, I mean, we'll just use like sleeping and dreaming for an example um, to kind of build off of what astral projection, you know, becomes. But it's like as soon as you start to get sleepy, um, you know, the brain waves start to change, um, you know, alpha and beta waves. And so for me to kind of think about it is that, yeah, when we're in these different realms, whether it's a dream realm or a psychedelic realm or some other kind of spiritual mystical realm, um, you are still you energetically in terms of your energetic frequency and the waves that happen, that that changes. And I did find one article kind of talking about fractal fractal density in, in your consciousness. And so when you um, are in an elevated state of consciousness, you have an increase in your fractal density and in these sorts of connections. And that's something that's really, really interesting. To go back to what you were saying with geometry, Dr. Walden, um, I love this. I forgot where I heard it, but it was saying describing geometry as the music we see with our eyes. And so you kind of have all of that um, ensemble and orchestra um, analogies that can go into geometry. And for me, the most fascinating thing, aside from the entities that you see and interact with in these altered spaces, is the geometry of the landscape in these realms, because they are cross-culturally and throughout history similar um and it's fascinating you know the classic psychedelic imagery would be like mandalas or honeycombs or spirals or fractals themselves and so thinking of consciousness almost like a fractal um starts to get really interesting and what dimension you're in you know when you're in two and 3d you're not really outwardly seeing these kinds of entities or geometric patterns but as soon as you enter that elevated exalted state of being it's everywhere it paints the landscape and that's something that i think is really really fascinating and something that i dedicate a lot of my time to trying to wrap my head around how can we see the same types of patterns why do we see them? There's this one field, well, like part of geometry where it's called hyperbolic geometry. And so what we see on a day-to-day -day basis and what they teach us in grade school is Euclidean geometry. And that is kind of like our regular day-to-day. -day. But there's a whole other side of that, which is non-Euclidean. And so a lot of, you know, things that govern how we perceive reality are actually non-Euclidean. The things that we take to, you know, as fact and what we are taught in school is only covers so little of, you know, this vast kind of spectrum that we were talking about earlier. One group, Harvard, they kind of described um, the DMT realm as a hyperbolic realm. And so it does follow this kind of non-Euclidean geometry. It's more curved. It doesn't, it's not as um, neat as Euclidean geometry. Yeah, that whole topic, <laughs> there's a lot yeah. that goes into there. <laughs> yeah, so you talked about entities. Um, I'm very curious about entities. 
I had my own experiences with some during my first breakthrough experience, and I had no idea what to expect. So that first encounter with them was unreal, amazing. But this is what I want to know. Do you, Dr. Walden, believe that they also reside in us or and that they're just part of our consciousness or that they're independent selves living their own lives? <laughs> Yeah, there is this 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 was this was very surprising to me as well cuz I you know I I I hadn't read that much <laughs> you know when uh, about this particular topic uh, when I first started and, and and this wasn't a thing where you see what you sort of expect to see I had no expectations it was it was very surprising um and and very strange and um at first it was sort of destabilizing actually yeah. <laughs> it was very confusing you know cuz I'm you know, I'm uh, um, I'm a Christian. I was a Christian, um, and and what I experienced at, at first was like, how how do I integrate this, <laughs> right, <laughs> um, with with my life and my faith, um, and and it and it took a little while. Um, but you know, the short answer is yes. Again, they're real. Um, they're just as real as you or I. Are they inside of us? Yeah, in some respect, they're inside of us, and then there are other respects in which we are inside of them. And you know, we are. So here's another sort of fun fact about consciousness. Consciousness expands and contracts to fill the space, right? So our consciousness is sort of is sort of constrained within our physical bodies and within our range of freedom. The kinds of things that we can do that gives us the limitations of of what our consciousness sort of um, allows in and filters out. It's very practical, and and because of that, we think that we are the center of the universe. And in some sense, we literally are the center of the universe because the universe is mind and mind when it appears in this place is sort of the throne of its own domain. And, and everything is sort of within scope and, and we're sort of middle sized. And so we think that we're in the middle. We think that we're in the center. Um, but guess what? So does everybody else. <laughs> right. Everybody else also thinks that they're the center of the universe. So the cells in our body are alive. Right. The cells in our body have their have what they like and what they don't like. They have their projects. They have their friendships. They have their own projects. They have their own distinctive sense of time, their perception of time. Uh, and guess what? They think they're the center of the universe. Right. They have no idea who we are. Right. And usually they don't care that. Well, they probably do care. They're <laughs> but, you know, and they themselves are an entire universe for the smaller sentient beings that make them up, right? Um, and, and what happens in this kind of very strange uh, sort of psychedelic space is when your consciousness yourself becomes delinked from your usual span, your usual realm, then you can travel, right? You can see, you can be very, very small and, and see some of these little microorganisms who are very surprised and delighted to see you, by the way. They're like, hey, <laughs> this is so funny. Yeah. What are you doing here? Um, you know, and at the That's same so time, you can, you can go bigger too. And they're and they a little bit more stern, right? They're a little bit more, you know, they're not quite as silly. They're not quite as fun, but they're very, very beautiful and very, very powerful. And, and, and they are mostly friendly, right? You go up, you go down, you go diagonal, you know, beings all across, it seems like my experience and, you know, other people, if other people have a, another experience, more power to them. But my experience has always been 
you know, people say, well, are there, are there good guys? And then are there bad guys? Are there demons? And are there angels? Like, are there, are some of them hostile? And basically the short answer is they're just like us. In other words, they're mostly friendly. Some of them are confused. Some of them have, uh, have, are, are at cross purposes with us, have other plans. Um, but there's, but there's no such thing as sort of inherent evil. There's no such thing as inherently enemy. There's just, there's just, uh, different scopes, different dimensions, different realms, different dominions. And all of us are made of the same stuff, even if we don't normally interact with one each with one another. Um, all of us have what we like and what we don't like. All of us think that we're the center of the universe. Um, and uh, all of us serve someone. And that's the most important choice that any of us make. No matter what your domain is, no matter what your dominion is, no matter what your realm is, the most important choice you make is, is whom will you serve? Are you, are you willing to serve? And, and, and it's funny, we, we, we all serve, you know? Yeah. So um, it's, been, it's, it's been interesting having that uh, message, I guess, having that insight. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, speaking of delighted. <laughs> yeah. Like the first time I broke through, this is actually very crazy. I, I want to see your perspective on this, but you know, my external view, everything I was hallucinating like crazy. So my room was swallowing itself. <laughs> and then once I closed my eyes, I appeared in this temple and there was these beings there. And this the, literally like, you know how time works differently in these other dimensions, right? So I close my eyes and I see a bunch of beings and they go like this, like they break their neck to look at me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like you walked in and they, they weren't expecting you. Yeah. Yeah. Like I literally interrupted some ceremony. Like that's literally what it looked like. And I was like, what the hell? So I opened my eyes again and I was like, wait, that's even worse. Cause I can't see anything. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to let it take me. So I closed my eyes again. And when I did that, a silver door appeared. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to open it. So I opened it and there's these beings there and there was all this beautiful light aura coming off of them. And I was like, oh, they're magical. And then this other entity popped out of nowhere and it had a mushroom head <laughs> and like a humanoid body, but very kind eyes. Like it was waiting for me. And it reached out its hand and said, come with me, let me show you. And I was like, okay. And, I, and this is all happening in my mind. And then it proceeded to like walk me through my entire life and my purpose here. And <laughs> it was really crazy. But now thinking back to it, um, me and Andrea were talking about it. And she said the Egyptians said that some entities that change their heads, they might be your higher self or something. Yeah, yeah. I was going <laughs> to um, add that in. Yeah. So I was watching this lecture online and essentially the different like hieroglyphs um, written in, in the like on the pyramids and in, you know, what the Egyptians kind of constructed wasn't necessarily that they were separate gods themselves, but, you know, the, the heads of these gods, whether it was, you know, Ra or, you know, you know, like the bird of the head of a bird or the head of something else, so on and so forth. Like it wasn't actually like a half bird, half man, but the head of the bird was more to symbolize a different state of being or a higher ascension, a higher point of ascension. And oh. so really it was a way to describe, you know, the human self, but a different version of the human self, a different state um, that, you know, the bird or whatever animal head would symbolize. 
And so the bird is very powerful. The bird is kind of like all seeing, you know, birds point eye, bird's eye view and stuff like that. And so the head of the bird um, is supposed to represent that kind of state of being. Um, and when you were telling me about this story, Leah, I immediately kind of thought about that and how, you know, perhaps the mushroom god wasn't, you know, some actual god, or it, it may be something that represents you and like a higher state of being, um, especially like that high dosage trip. And so when you kind mm -hmm. of go to these other extreme entities um, that you will encounter on like a really high dose or a really strong psychedelic, like DMT entities, I kind of wonder, like, are they their own autonomous individual being or are they part of or are they symbolic representations of this collective consciousness like how we're saying and what you were kind of saying earlier dr walden where no matter who you are whether you're an entity a psychedelic entity or you know just a human or you know somebody else we all think we're the center of our own universes um, but if we all think we're the center of our own universes then you know where does that idea that shared idea come from and so that kind of puts me into mm -hmm. this place of, does it all come from this collective consciousness, like this continuous sense of collective consciousness? And so then these entities are the more discrete, separate manifestations of that. And they look different. You know, they have different appearances. You know, one might have a mushroom head, one might have a bird head, one might be, you know, a woman of light. They have these different um, appearances to represent different ideologies, but they may be kind of all manifestations of the same collective consciousness, which is what yeah, I, think, I think that both things are true mm -hmm. in, in the sense that, did you ever see this movie uh, Contact? It's based on a Carl Sagan novel. It has like Jodie Foster and she's like an astrologist. She's like a scientist. And they're trying to get contact with space. Anyway, mm -hmm. she, she goes on this trip. I won't, it's sort of technology based rather than medicine based, but, mm -hmm. and she encounters this being, um, and the being appears in the form of her father who, who had passed away. And, and she says, wait a minute, you're, you're not my dad. My dad's dead. And, and he says, yeah, I know. I, I'm, just, I'm just appearing in this form because having seen your, the entirety of your consciousness, as we obviously can, uh, we, we picked this form for your benefit so that we could, you know, uh, uh, communicate what we wanted to, to communicate yeah. with. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know. Like I was asking all these people like, oh, what does this mean? Why did their heads look a certain way um, or anything? And the spiritual people that I talked to said that um, the he could have, for example, with my breakthrough dose, my the entity that was speaking to me mostly could have changed their head to um, look like a mushroom so that it could uh, show me how connected I was to the mushroom spirit because the big thing uh for me was that i was here to that i'm here to spread the message of psilocybin you know give people you know awareness of what it can do help expand consciousness and it was really crazy that the entity that decided to share that knowledge with me also had a mushroom head uh, so very interesting and the beings the first beings that i saw i actually found images of them i was watching a gaia episode do you know um the the network gaia oh you should definitely watch it so um they just have a bunch of different topics like ancient um, civilizations psychedelics anything spiritual related they have 
the coolest people coming from all over the world to talk about it. So it's actually wild. And there was a one episode where they were showing cave paintings from so, so, so long ago. And when they paused on the cave paintings, I was like, no way. Those are exactly the beings I saw when I first closed my eyes. It scarred in my brain, right? So, and I had no idea how else to describe them, but they had huge eyes. Um, I couldn't see a mouth. It was just like kind of squished, a squished face, but they didn't look creepy or anything. Um, I was just like surprised, like, (laughs) what? (laughs) And I found out they are spirits. According to, you know, the ancient people who uh, drew these pictures. And I was like, okay, I arrived in a temple full of spirits. And then the second, you know, they noticed I was there, I somehow got transported to another entity, either my higher self or some, maybe a spirit guide who was there to show me um, where I'm headed, which was very, very interesting. It was such an amazing experience because they... It was like they were aware that I was in another state of consciousness. They're like, you know, all of these lessons they were, you know, telling me, they were like, you know, will you do this? And I was agreeing to all the stuff this entity was showing me. It's like, you're meant for this, but you have to work hard. You have to stop being so human and stop being so uncomfortable. I was like, what? Like, how do they, how are they saying this right now? And this is all telepathic, obviously, because I'm understanding it. (laughs) Yeah, through my head. For the people who don't know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And it was like, even though you're in another state right now, it's your choice to commit to these things. And I was like, wow. Okay. They are very, they know exactly what's going on in this world. But what's very surprising to me is how this entity knew everything about me, everything that I was going through you know, during my life at that time, it started showing me images of my soul as a flower, this big flower with this powerful healing energy in the middle and it was showing me why I connect to certain people. It was absolutely beautiful. And another thing it showed me was extraterrestrials. Um, it has zoomed me out of the earth uh, and was showing me how extraterrestrials see humans, how we are eating very poorly, We are uh, very disconnected from who we are. We are not questioning um, why we are here, what our consciousness is. Like we're kind of abusing this amazing gift that we have to perceive the world. Uh, It was very cool. (laughs) I was just like, wow, I saw them get off the ship. Uh, I saw greys from what I, in my um, trip. Um, And yeah, they were, this mushroom entity was telling me to enlighten people it was like show them like this is not who they are like you know expand their minds like blah blah and I was like what (laughs) I was not thinking about this at all it was even showing me images of where our earth is going pollution um you know the smoke in the air all the things that we think is going to happen in our future if we don't do something about climate change they were basically showing me these images um and I was very shocked by it. And I wanted to ask you, um, what does what could this possibly mean? What? How can we see aliens in a psychedelic space? Because I know I'm not the only person who has seen aliens in the, the psilocybin experience. Um, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. I think, yeah, yeah it's, that's really beautiful. I love um, kind of like how you describe that where it's like if if these other entities you know are able to see you fully as the interconnected whole that you are this collective whole that you are um it's almost as if they have you know 
more access to like higher frequencies, higher, you know, that, that we can't see, like we, like how we only see less than 1%. It's, it's almost as if they're more receptive and it's more data for them to, from which to draw um, conclusions and about the world that they perceive and, and different types of experiences that we as humans make. Um, and so you kind of go back to this, um, like what you were saying about how it's silly to separate us from other things, humans versus other. Um, and if we draw that back to, again, this idea of the collective whole, collective consciousness, you know, at the end of the day, we, we're all entities, we're all souls and just different manifestations. And so I guess my question at the end of the day is like, is it all manifestations of the same singular thing? Or, you know, do all these different manifestations serve different purposes? Is it again, different purposes towards the same singular thing or different purposes for different things? And so I, yeah, I mean, part of your article talks about the idea between personal and transpersonal. And I see that a lot in kind of more classic fields of psychology where, you know, they're trying to look at transpersonal psychology. You know, I'm interested in kind of like the root of that personal. So trans means like above personal. And so what is above our daily, you know, experience of life? Is that still tethered to personal or does transpersonal imply, you know, something else entirely? I think the, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me, the most interesting is that highest level, that God frequency, if you will. Um, is it all pervasive? Is it meant for everybody, all entities, no matter what frequency you're at? Are we all trying to, you know, get attuned to that God frequency or, or is it more personal than that? Is it what God, your God frequency means to you? Um, and that's something that I think will always just kind of astound me. Um, and, you know, we'll get to that question in time, but I think for right now, the most beautiful thing um, I find about, you know, all of the study in consciousness and, you know, um, psychedelics is how we kind of take charge of that on our own level, on our own human level. And why, you know, in some cases, you, you know, let's say like, you know, these ETs are, you know, interested in humans because we have this beautiful ability to kind of take charge of, you know, our authenticity and manipulate it and to whoever we want to be, do whatever we want to do, live whatever life we want to live and, you know, be fully immersed in that in, in light and love to the fullest extent, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that self-actualization is at the very, very top. What does that mean to you personally? There's all, you know, so many different manifestations of what that means to different people, whether you want to, you know, be a scientist or you want to be a musician, like what does that highest wrong mean to you? Um, and it, capabilities that humans have to kind of do so much with that is that I think is like one of our greatest strengths and one of our, you know, most divine qualities that we have. I think the beauty of being on earth and being in this life is being able to make change here. There's so much that could be changed. And I think we are in our process of elevating our consciousness, which is a huge job to do. Uh, And everyone who's interested, you know, in this subject, I feel like 
you know, if you feel a calling to help expand people's consciousness, this is where things can start to change because the more we realize how connected we are to our own planet and to the cosmos and everything around us, the more we can excel in our lives, have better lives, um, and take care of our planet more. I think this is the big problem. You're so closed off to our connectedness. You know, we're all individuals, you know, in our own bubbles of our own lives, but no, we are all in this together. And this is the beauty of psilocybin. I truly think that magic mushrooms can really open up people's brains to why we need to take care of our planet. How like just take some take a little microdose and go into nature and just see how beautiful it is. It's actually unreal. You just want to hug all the trees, mm-hmm. hug all the people that walk past you. Everything is just so beautiful. You I don't know. I feel a sense of wanting to protect my planet when I'm you know, even when I'm not taking psilocybin, but um, yeah, this is a really big task and, you know, it's not all on our shoulders, but together we can make a huge difference here. Yeah. And do you think that that, you know, kind of motivation to create change and to do things for good and to expand light and love, um, would those, could that be considered as like frequencies, you know, you know, parts of that God frequency that are like trickling down into us where it's like that ultimate sense of, you know, altruistic goodness and um, like, I don't know, the human, um, the, the human need and want to do that for one another is that kind of like little spurts of that, like God frequency kind of interjecting into our space here. Sometimes can even get so muddled by that dirt that we forget the need to attune in the first place, you know, it's like, why attune? There's no point to attune. And that's where I feel like I I kind of see a lot of, um, you know, people stuck in the game of, you know, quote unquote, the game of life, the game of society, like, oh, you know, I just have to do what I got to do, just work, eat, sleep, shit, (laughs) and repeat. And it's like, (laughs) it's so upsetting. It's so, it's so closed. It's so, it's painful almost. And we just saw Avatar last night and it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, what they talked about in the movie of, you know, the people on Avatar, the Navi, they have, they call, um, they talk about the great balance. Um, And they were saying how the sky people, humans don't have respect for the great balance. And that's where, um, things like revenge and negative emotions and violence and destruction come into play. Um, And that can be, you know, metaphorically, like in your mental, or it can even be physically, like in the state of the world, which we've been seeing a lot of lately and sort of this exacerbated disconnectedness. Um, And when we have a complete disregard for the great balance, like you really become so muddled by that dirt to the point where it's like, what why attune you know I just need to focus on survival basic survival I don't even have the time to attune and so you really have this loss of the great balance and the great balance is something that has you know existed not only in avatar but just like human history as a whole the entire you know our entire history and it is something so simple yet absolutely quintessential that we've forgotten and it's it is a little sad mm-hmm. the, definitely just like the practice of shutting your mind off in multiple different ways you know meditation astral projection um yeah there's many ways you don't need psilocybin to access 
these. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's the beauty. Just experiment around, figure out, and just shut off from this crazy world and let your mind yeah. go. And it'll come back with some amazing knowledge for you. Let it be at the <laughs> yes, end of the day. Yes, this was amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Walden, for having this conversation with us. This is absolutely amazing. And please tell everyone where either they can um, read your publications or get in contact with you. Awesome. And I'll definitely put all of that in the description so the listeners can find it. <laughs> Thank you so much again. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.